0: welcome to network capital stephanie here we try and demystify career principles of interesting people you've had a great background um in a wide range of spaces policy technology journalism what have you I would love to hear from you about how you wanna describe yourself and what's the best way for listeners to get to know you.
1: Sure, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I really believe in the importance of mentorship and sharing knowledge and our career experiences. So um, just really appreciate this opportunity to connect with your audience. So as you probably saw from my career, I had a very unusual journey, I would say, to where I am now as a deputy director and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Geotech Center. It was entirely one that I think would have been very unpredictable um, had you asked me when I was 20 what I was going to do. Um, I do, for the record, see myself as a social innovator, as a problem solver. Uh, I'm really very passionate about the spaces in, in innovation and disruption, and specifically how we can leverage them for social good. Um, and the idea that innovation really is something that everybody on our planet should have access to, and we should be thinking about how do we innovate to solve the world's largest challenges, which to me are really global climate change, wealth inequity, and um, somewhat adjacent to that future of work. So, how are we mm-hmm. going to address how technology may destabilize different societies, right? So, those are sort of my passion points. Um, but what happened is when I was 20, I thought I wanted to be a movie producer. So wow. I went to Hollywood, I um, went to New York City and then went to Hollywood and got some incredible jobs on movie sets, including Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Man on Fire. I was even Jake Gyllenhaal, the actor's dog walker for a while. So I had quite a few jobs in the industry, but what it really taught me was a lot about grit, I think, and, and how to get things done in very detail oriented ways movies are very high stakes productions with a lot of really important stakeholders. And so it taught me a lot about stakeholder management and negotiating between different teams. What it also taught me and I didn't realize at the time was how disruptive technology is to industries. I didn't understand it, but when I came in I thought I wanted to be in movie business, right? In the actual production of film. Meanwhile, a lot of the great storytelling was already migrating to television, and within the same span of the ten years that I worked in film, it migrated to um, radio and uh, sorry, it migrated to um, internet and like podcasts, right? So there were these huge shifts, um, including like several writer strikes that destabilized the market for a while. Um, I was work- I ended my career working at uh, Fox, where I worked on the rise of Hulu and the fall of MySpace at the same time. So it really, oh. yeah, it illuminated how much disruption plays a role and how difficult it can be for large scale companies to understand how to really penetrate these new businesses. So that's kind of the first chapter of my career. I then used business school to pivot, um, went to a local university, University of Southern California, Los Angeles. Uh, I'm sorry, um, I just, I just hybrided two things. I used to work at University of Southern California, but this was uh, UCLA. UCLA, yeah. All right, thank you. So I was at UCLA and got my degree where I would not recommend doing this, but I was in business school and went, I need to pivot, I need to change from this film thing. I think that chapter's done. But I was fortunate enough to hear an inner voice that said, you believe that telling stories changes people's lives. And so, when I listened to that voice, I began to look in corporate social responsibility and social change job sectors and was really fortunate to land on this incredible opportunity at the XPRIZE Foundation, which again is a, a local nonprofit based in, well, it's a local global nonprofit based in um, Los Angeles area. And they had the most incredible mission, which was to design these incentive prize competition that challenged teams of innovators to tackle the world's biggest problems. Um, So we were working on issues like ocean health and global learning and how do we bring tablet-based education across the globe and um, how do we build better ocean pH sensors. I personally, while I was there in the four and a half years, I was there, designed prize competitions in artificial intelligence, the IBM Watson AIX Prize, which is an active prize competition. I designed um, competitions that unfortunately didn't launch but were huge seminal development experiences for me in flying cars. Um, in tissue engineering and organ generation, um, I worked on a host of other issues, including soft skills, uh, post-traumatic stress, just a variety of topics. I must have worked on 22 ch- challenge investigations while I was there, and our role was very comprehensive. Everything from how do we do the research, how do we how do we aggregate information across experts. Um, all the way to client management, program design, budgeting. It was really an incredible opportunity. Plus, we were out there on the front lines speaking. I, I will say, for those of your audience that are thinking about working in nonprofits versus corporations, one thing that's pretty incredible about nonprofit opportunities is a lot of the growth really requires the team members stepping up. And so, in a nonprofit space, you can often get opportunities to be out there speaking, to be out there. Um, uh, really kind of developing your career in exciting ways if you're willing to put in the extra legwork. So we got to go to conferences and speak about our work. We really were very, um, you know, kind of used in really incredible ways and, and just developed a wealth of experiences. It was probably one of the right. formative times in my career. Um, I then uh, went on to University of Southern California where I became a lecturer in, in innovation, design and disruption, and then um, came to the Atlantic Council um, where I'm really bringing my my design thinking, my prototyping skills, as well as my client management skills to bear within our program. And now I'm currently managing or co-managing with uh, Dr. David Braid a team of 14.
0: So it's been a really- What an interesting career.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: You know, as somebody who's, uh, you know, who's been an actor and still dabbles in acting, I love that you spent 10 years in Hollywood. It taught you grit, among other things. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are lots of lessons. Could you tell us about a few that jump out? Like what did those 10 years teach you um, that helped you do your job today at the Atlantic better or that helped you at XPRIZE?
1: Yeah, I, probably the number one is don't take no for an answer, which sounds sort of perhaps a bit cliche, but was really true. I mean, I learned to pick up the phone and call anybody and ask for anything. And I also learned how to like push for what I needed. It was very, you know, at times it was very much a pressure cooker kind of job but I learned how to ask nicely for what I needed and, and, but but also be really persistent in that. Um, And so I think that was really, probably the top number one lesson. Um, For me too, what surprised me about that experience was the joy that I personally get from working with experts um, and how great it is to be around people that really know their stuff. What I hadn't realized about the movie business is by the time you get to these A-level films, everyone on the set, not just the actors, is at the absolute pinnacle of their career. So right. working with the best stunt people, the best greens people, you know, people are set dressing, like the best makeup artists, the best costumers. And when you start to ask them what they know and how it informs their work, um, that's just a really powerful learning opportunity it's it's for me i I just obviously by being of being at the Atlantic Council and, and the steps that subsequently followed my movie career i i just love working with experts i love people that are able to go deep and know a lot and i love seeing what the differences are between what they know um so i would say those are probably the two biggest lessons learned from from that time in my life
0: essential for business essential for nonprofits but I loved what you said about you know people trying to make a difference in the nonprofit space you really need to do above and beyond and rise up and uh, get into the thick of things mm-hmm. um, when did you first realize that this needed to be done and uh, can you give a few examples from say XPRIZE or the, the Atlantic Council today where you've had to step up do above and beyond because the incentive structure of nonprofits is not like say a typical corporation right or a Or a bank or a tech company it's different.
1: That's such a fair point I I would say like I feel like I got that vibe from day one but I also think at XPRIZE you're very privileged to be asked to do a lot I I think actually the caveat I would say about about nonprofits is um, XPRIZE and actually I would say the Atlantic Council as well have aspired to being high-growth organizations so they aspire to to growing the body of work that they do, right? So XPRIZE wants to do more competitions, the Atlantic Council wants to do more thought leadership, more more, you know, more research, more work, right? And all nonprofits do to some extent, but that appetite may be different. Um, and yeah. so I think for the high growth nonprofit, those opportunities really present themselves because you're really only paid to do the work you're currently doing. So all of the work that you want to be doing sort of is spread across and the uh, the sense of prospecting the sense of trying to develop those lines of business are really kind of spread across the entire team to develop right And, and things are such that if you have an idea that fits within mission and are able to make the case for why it should be something that that is funded and if you can even go out and find the funders it's usually very hard to say no to those kinds of opportunities as a nonprofit when they come along. Um, so I think my, my tip to, to folks thinking about how to leverage their experience as nonprofits is getting really keen on the mission, understanding what your leadership thinks about that mission, and then bringing as much as you can those aligned ideas. And I, and I probably the survival skills in a nonprofit aren't that different. It's about learning how to you know, step up, ask for those opportunities, ask for what you want. Um, But like anywhere I think you also need supportive leaders and supportive managers that see the value of their team and understand that you can empower your team to be out there on the front lines doing that kind of work and without that I mean I think we're sunk and I would I would say I think our careers are too exciting the work opportunities in this new age are too interesting for folks to stay in positions that don't excite them and drive them and make them feel like they can make a meaningful contribution you know, as, as a student of kind of the abundance mindset, um, I, I think work is one of the places where we tend to get most trapped in a sense of scarcity. We think there are no other jobs out there, or, you know, we th- might think like, oh, no one else is gonna hire us. When in the reality is for, for those folks getting into these new career spaces, um, there's lots of opportunities out there. And I, and I think that's the illusion that we have to crack.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Um, could you tell us a bit about the uh, abundance mindset and uh, how do you, you know, put it in practice um, in different settings? How did you put it in practice in Hollywood, uh, at XPRIZE and now at the Atlantic Council? And I forget, you were also a professor, right? At USC. How do you teach abundance market, uh, mindset to your students?
1: Thanks, so I would say I had no clue about the abundance mindset at all until I got to XPRIZE where, Peter Diamandis, the founder, was known for his sort of abundance philosophy. It's the title of his book. Um, and I think that was sort of eye-opening. Well, x was eye-opening because it was an introduction to some lines of thinking, one being about exponential growth and the idea that technologies are really compounding right now. We're in this era of potentially super high growth and huge technology impact and overlap. So that was the first piece. But the abundance mindset that he really sort of aspires to, and I think others have put these philosophies out there as well. Is, is just really trying to tune into, to even though we think some problems are unsolvable, that there may be ways that we're not seeing things that we can step back from to really perceive that there is greater opportunity. And I don't, I, I think this philosophy has two pieces to it. Like, I think that on one hand can be true, but we also have to really acknowledge that for those who have, um, who are vulnerable, who have severe mental health challenges, who, you know, these things may be harder. And so I don't wanna just come across as like being abundance without accountability for what the state of things are in the world. Um, That was certainly something that I think the social work community and the time I spent there as a a lecturer taught me as well. Um, But I think that idea of reframing and what I've since learned about research around kind of abundance thinking is that innovation, creative thinking really hinge on the ability to on on the ability to see the art of the possible. So you have to be able to step back and reframe and say, what is possible within this? How can I see this problem differently? How do I redefine the problem or part of this problem so that it's solvable? Right. And if you, do, if you can't get to that first step, all of the sort of pathways of innovation are foreclosed to you at that moment. And so that's, I'm extremely passionate about that way of trying to help people see So that started at XPRIZE, right? The idea of of prize competitions being used to say, let's take a team of innovators and go, how do we solve this? And and I think what I loved about that time was, we never had to bring the solution, we had to learn how to craft a problem in a really specific and kind of special way where, and and I found insensibly that most people don't know how to do this, where you don't actually define the solution, you really start to define, here's the criteria and the boundary conditions, let's explain the use case and then figure out what works. So that was there. I then took that forward to the social work community as part of University of Southern California, um, and um, really taught a bunch of social work students about this this skill set, which had not really kind of made its way into that industry, um, primarily because, especially in the U.S., the social work community is so inundated with. Um, they they're the front lines of most of our. Social problems, and so they are entirely overwhelmed under resource. So the image I always get in my mind when talking about talking with them is like folks trying to bail out a sinking boat, right? Like they are just trying to keep boat afloat, and it's really hard to get folks who are in that kind of crisis mode to say, okay, let's actually, how do we repair the hole, right? Or how do you, and, and especially in a world where they're like, we've got no resources, we've got not a lot of support. So it was a real. Um, growth challenge for me to figure out how do you help people who are in this front, you know, sort of frontline space, step back and begin to see this problem differently and try to go about solving it in a different way, recognizing too, that you have a whole pipeline where you might have to be triaging the end stage of a problem. Like you can't, you can't leave folks who are addicted to opioids addicted and just say, I'm going to prevent opioid addiction. You have to deal with the crisis at, at the end of the pipeline too. So, um, but but yeah, it's trying to help those students step back and say what's, what's possible. And what they taught me is that we especially have to be really considerate people who've experienced trauma because those who've experienced trauma have much less of a pathway into abundance mindset for a lot of different reasons. Um, so I kind of covered a lot of ground, but, but this is an important topic to me and it has had lots of threads throughout my career.
0: I love the way you spoke about uh, defining the problem. Could you explain that uh, with more color, more details? Because I feel that's such an important mental model for anyone looking for, say, who's struggling to find jobs in the COVID-affected workspace, anyone looking to solve a problem uh, which seems impossible. What are some um, ideas or insights that they can look look up uh, while they're trying to define the problem?
1: Sure, yeah, I'm happy to talk about defining the problem. I will say in terms of like those of your, your community that are looking for work right now in the COVID space, I think one of the things that I would challenge folks to think about just to sort of put this abundance philosophy into practice is to think about the power of remote work, right, if you start to see your job hiring spaces anywhere in the world or anywhere in the country, just think of the volume of jobs now that you can apply for that have opened up to you. So that's one kind of art of the reframe that I would just present out there. Hmm. Um, in terms of defining the problem, I think to me, it really hinges on understanding what sort of, what is the, there's a couple pieces to it. One is, can you try to frame a positive or the, the problem state in something that you know, there's not a lack of resources, but how do we say, um, uh, something like, you know, children need to be able to have reading skills in order to be educated, right? So forming, um, forming a sort of positive statement at the start of your problem definition, just so you can really um, try to not say it's a lack of education, but the problem is that they don't have this critical skill, right? Does that make sense? Right. I kind of lost you there. But um, so I, I try to start there where I can, not not supposing the last part of it. Um in terms of really the problem definition, I think it's about researching and understanding. So let me give you an example from my my career. Um when I was at x we worked on a flying car competition. And um
0: that's fascinating, right? Imagine working on things like flying cars. It's pretty yeah, it really
1: wild, right? So we stepped and we we stopped as a team um and said well, it started first with a conversation about where are there gaps in transportation, right? And we sort of looked at this like mid mid distance um, realm and said, well, there's kind of this whole commute, like if we could expand the the range in which people could live and commute to work, that would have a real change on society. So we began to look at what were the what were the distances and then we funneled down to say, well, it does seem like there's this air air transportation opportunity because it doesn't require infrastructure. Then we stepped back and said well, okay, so why don't we have this, right? What, what's what been all of the barriers? And we looked at things, we looked at safety, we looked at regulation, we looked at the technology. It turned out that the technology and actually even the automation was really advancing quite quickly. Mm-hmm. What the barriers were, were more regulatory and they hinged really somewhat on safety, but less than you might think it really came down to noise as being the problem. Oh. So when we started looking at it, we said, well, how do we create Quiet vehicles, and then actually have them compete on this metric. So we framed a competition that actually said, "Now, you know, here's the problem to this this group of solvers. You know, develop a flying car that's, you know, safe according to some set of metrics. That's quiet. That's quiet within some frame, um, and then we'll award the prize accordingly. And so that's a lot of how I think I learned those problem problem defining skills." Um, and, and so that's kind of how I would talk about problem solving or even teaching in a classroom. Um, but primarily what I would say is I would coach your, your, your audience to think about um, really understanding what's the use case. So how is something going to be used? And then from mm-hmm. there, using that to scope the problem. So going back to that reading example, it's not just about saying kids can't read, but it's about saying what's, what's the paradigm for, for learning in a, in, in a particular classroom in a given community what's the nature of the students and the challenges that they have Hmm. and then scoping and describing that as the problem state. So that's sort of how I would bring it full circle.
0: Fantastic. What brought you to the Atlantic Council and how's your career progressed here?
1: Um, I'd say I'm very new at the Atlantic Council still, so I think it's progressing beautifully, but it's also still that exciting time where I'm still working with my team to really develop um, the work that we do and the projects that we're doing. And we're, and we're in a very entrepreneurial state. The center that I'm a part of has only been open for about a year. So we are still very much in building mode, which is just a really exciting place to be. Um, I, the reason I got here was probably primarily relationships. So I met the um, direct center director, Dr. David Bray um, at x he had advised us on our um, AI and cybersecurity competitions. He and I had always stayed in touch. He was a very unusual, very creative thinker. And I really, um, liked what he like sort of how he he brought new ideas to the table. So we'd always mm-hmm. stayed in touch and looked for that right opportunity to work together. And um, when COVID hit, I decided I was ready for change. He put out there that he was looking for a deputy, and we started to talk about our skills and how we align and realized we would be a really good fit. I bring a very complementary skill set to what he brings to the table, and so it's a really exciting leadership partnership because of that. So we try to really leverage what we see differently and, and, and bring that to our team and make it useful in the development of the center. And, it, and it's been an exciting exciting go of it. So just tell you a little bit about what we're working on here. We are um, developing initiatives in artificial intelligence and in government, specifically with a focus on data. We're really mm-hmm. interested in non-traditional um, Players in the geopolitics of technology. So we're really interested in tracking how our companies shaping um, shaping uh, geopolitics right now. You know, when when nation states have the wealth of you know countries, how does that change the nature of how we might think about governance? So we are looking at that as an issue. We also do follow and track U.S. tech policy. Um, But our goal here is to convene really great discussions, bring forward lots of new ideas across multiple technology spaces, and then ultimately to stand up and projects that actually test out new ways of governance, new ways of using tech for good, um, all with the idea of how are we really contributing to global peace and prosperity.
0: That sounds like a powerful mission and an energizing one that I just hosted some people from the Oxford Internet Institute last night. And uh, interestingly, they were talking about very similar issues. It's such a a massive problem to look at, right? And we're in the early stages of tackling it. Uh, What's the mission of that center? And uh, so far, what are some projects that or initiatives that are exciting you?
1: We're very, I mean, we really have a broad mission. It is really anything to do with artificial intelligence, um, technology, and data that um, drive global peace and prosperity. Um, and we really use that very much. David and I use it regularly as a litmus test for what we're going to do. It's taken us into some really surprising spaces. So our portfolio includes everything from like space and satellite technology, to agriculture technology, um, to a lot of work we want to do. We we ended up focusing a lot of our interest in in data or sorry in, in technology computing. Around data and how data is used and shared between groups, because we think that's really the primary driver of artificial intelligence. We've also had a lot of conversations about diversity in technology and the workforce pipeline. Um, and so uh, I've personally, in the short time I've been here, stood up a podcast on women in technology leadership. Um, we're co-developing that right now with um, Amazon Web Services. So we have a lot of really great projects in the fire, in in the, in the hopper, so to speak. Um, we do a lot of broadcasts that so we do a weekly geotech hour podcast as well, um, as well as a lot of different convenings with our partners on a broad range of issues. So yeah, we really have a very exciting portfolio of work, I would say at this point.
0: But women uh, or diversity is an important area. Um, Arjun, the person who introduced us, uh, thank you, Arjun, first of all, uh, he okay. told me that that's a huge passion of yours. and. Or network capital is a huge passion for us as well we have a hundred thousand plus strong community and more than 50 percent of them are, happen to be women and we are incredibly proud of that but that's not the norm right whether, whether it comes to work or in tech especially when it comes to uh, ai cyber security we aren't seeing as many diverse voices so uh what's uh what's what's your vision like? how might that space change? What are some interventions that you've observed in your rich and diverse experience that seem to really be encouraging towards uh, women taking up roles in these sectors?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I wish I were an expert in this space. I really am a student in this space. I think like- many, Aren't we
0: all? I think we're all sort of figuring this out, yeah.
1: We are. I mean, a couple of thoughts on that. So first off, just congratulations to you and the effort that you've put here. I think one of the um, thoughts that occurred while we were developing our our podcast vision is just the importance and that that women's leadership is scarce. And so we actually do need, as we talk about making it more abundant, by getting women front and center. Um, And and hearing from them and recognizing their ability to provide perspective, lead, be asking them about their work is really mission critical. And this goes, I think, for any diverse stakeholder Mm group leaders that have achieved success in that space. I think the really hard part though about the work ahead is the importance of challenging all of the social norms that surround different groups and sort of their relationship to kind of the traditional way of doing things that include to some extent, especially in the US kind of the the sort of patriarchal structure um, that still remains, especially at the highest levels of leadership. And what I mean by that is, is we have to really look at some of the unspoken social rules and also the level of risk. So people, I think, experience different level of risk and going after career ambitions. And that may be based on how much social safety net or financial cushion they have. It may be based on how they were sort of indoctrinated into workspaces. So I find that as leaders, one of the things we have to be really critical about is not subconsciously trying to even steer our Um, our, you know, female employees to behave differently. I think there are different expectations sometimes just based on like how people are expected to behave or show up that go back to these unspoken rules. So really challenging those assumptions. I have a bunch of really young kind of go-getters on my team and I have to really challenge myself even to say, how do I make sure I'm not quashing that energy, that vibrancy, that ability to go out and and do things through even maybe what I learned because I got my hand slapped, right? So, and it's when I was talking with my mom about just the generations and she was saying how she she looks at me as being much more of a risk taker and a go-getter than even she was in her career. And we're sort of talking about how we have this responsibility to like pay it forward even though at times for us, it's uncomfortable or doesn't feel like the way things were done for us. I really firmly believe that, that the next generation of solutions Lies with the next generation. I I, I think we have this just incredible opportunity right now because of the conversation, certainly in the United States, with the conversation that's happening around Black Lives Matter. um, With the issues that have come to light about the unfinished work that we are needing to grapple with around racism in this country, that we have a whole new opportunity to work towards another level of equity and equality. I know I'm on a tear, but let me make one other point, which is, I think the other part of this is we have to address the wealth gap um, between careers, between nations. If we don't do that, I think all of our hopes of parity between um, different populations is not gonna be achieved. And, and I, part of why I'm so passionate about working in tech and artificial intelligence is I believe that that's where wealth is gonna be made. But we can also see in the data that there's huge disparities. So how do we make sure that we're pushing those women, not pushing but encouraging those women to move into the spaces, welcoming them when they're getting there, valuing their different viewpoints? All of this is like the huge work that has to be done, and and frankly, I'm not sure I have all of the solutions, but I I, I try to really listen to those that are that are offering the password.
0: Yeah. Um- you mentioned about managing 14 people, some of who, all of them might be coming from different age groups, different, uh, you know, perhaps different countries, ethnicities, uh, uh, origins, etc. cetera. Um, how do you, how does one manage a team of 14 in a setup like the Atlantic Council? Are there some best practices? Are there some structures that you've put in, in place? Um, how do you go about doing it in a Zoom-propelled world?
1: If there are best practices, Classes, please provide them to me because I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think we are learning on the fly. I, I will say what helped me is I spent two years at, US, at USC teaching virtually so for me virtual interaction was really quite comfortable coming in. Oh you,
0: you you taught virtually at USC that's yeah. amazing yeah.
1: Yeah so I've been virtual for two years um, or more I mean I had the opportunity I don't live far from the university so I was able to go in and, and ta- from time to time and have that human connection but Um, I am very comfortable in virtual and had to learn a lot, like the hard way about teaching in virtual classroom and how it changes how people's energy comes across. Even little things like the delay in Zoom, like I'd make a joke and there'd be crickets for a while and then people would laugh and be like, wait, I have to like see if this lands. Um, So in terms of this team, I I think what was really exciting and and I have to give credit to David who um, had been on the team and developed the center for for almost a year before I came aboard. The team was culturally in a really healthy spot when I came on. And I was really pleasantly surprised. I wasn't sure how folks were going to be feeling kind of in the COVID of it all. I think for we had so many young professionals that were just starting their first job that they didn't really know any differently. Um and, and they're you know somewhat a bit more digital native, so that helped us. Um, I think what some really like basic tactical things is in in a virtual world you have to be really careful about communication over teams and email and the tone of it and so i try to make sure that any kind of feedback session that's happening or if i'm sensing like sometimes i, I can remember reading a chat with a team member and i could just see we had like not aligned that there was a fundamental assumption that was different from my assumption and it was just occurring and i was like the more we're going to chat about this the more we are going to get off base And so really saying, whoa, 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 like we need to stop this happening in the chat and get at least where we can see faces and get that extra layer of information is so critical. I think that's 90% of it. Um, I think not losing sight of building your culture. And so I've noticed that our team does a lot to just even come together for happy hours, create playlists, share memes, share gifts. Like we do a lot of just like kind of silly things in the background to keep that energy of we're a team working. Um, I think kudos to, to David. One of his leadership philosophies is really about network power. And so he really tries to empower our team to take a lot of responsibility and run with the projects. I think you can't be in a virtual environment and not have trust for your team and trust that it's working. And I've been in cultures where the expectation is both to have kind of, you know, be in your seat for eight hours a day and then be working 24 7. And so that's a really unfair situation to put the team in and so our, our philosophy tends to be do your work we trust you and honestly we know because again of the workload that we have that if, if things are getting done we know the team is working hard it's, it's like you can kind of see the flow and if something doesn't seem like it's gotten done then then that's when we have those touch points and those check checkpoints and we try to really keep it I think um kind of healthy inquiry, like what's going on with you personally, like how, how are things going and understanding where stuff is coming from. And, and then just owning that we all have moments of something got missed or something got dropped and, and how do we course correct? So We have a really I think, healthy sort of course correction culture more than like a um, and more of a like go go forth and do and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of re-steer our help where we can. So, so I think David and I really see ourselves more as a support system for the team in some ways than like the leadership of the team if that makes any sense.
0: I think your yeah, psychological safety is so important. Uh, I read Amy Edmondson's work and I was uh, really blown away by how, um, uh, how frequently it is used these days when it comes to managing in the virtual space. But I also love the fact that a couple of professors in the West Coast, they wrote a book called Humor Seriously about the importance of uh, humor in basically at the work setting. And she also, those professors also had Amy, um, Amy's work brought about in that book. So, so important for teams to connect on things beyond just work to build that kind of a setting, especially when you're working for problems that are hard to define. Like AI in the world today, it can mean anything and everything can also get intimidating at times. So, so important to have those kinds of things in place. Um, When you look at a day in your life, I I see uh, that you've carved out a space in deep tech, even though you are not per se uh, trained in deep tech. Your your background is business, management, film, and you managed to create a very meaningful role for yourself. And when I look at you, I see that even when somebody is not coming from say tech, you can still have a meaningful role in that space. So, what's your advice to people who are, say, liberal arts uh, folks or people in alternate or adjacent streams, but still are curious about uh, how might they go about it?
1: Yeah, so I, I really went through this journey on um, the artificial intelligence competition that I signed, um, because I think I can kind of remember my boss coming to me and saying, you're gonna work on an artificial intelligence competition and I was like, what's artificial intelligence, right? (laughs) Um, So I had to learn really quickly. And what I think the trick to anything is just learning. But what's surprising is that you can get up to speed very quickly. I mean, in some ways I had the luxury. I had six months where I got to read, study, talk to folks. And honestly, I started doing interviews before I really even knew a lot. I mean, I'd read a little bit to prep, but I was talking to experts right away. And I think the tr- trick that, of the trade that I took away from that is one, learn the vocabulary. So the, mm. every, every time someone said something to me that I didn't understand, I went and looked it up and I read it. And then I started to put those pieces in place. Um, I'm a big fan. And I think what's, what's exciting about the world we live in now is there's a ton of great writing out there that's accessible. So I almost... Now I really gravitate to, you know, forums like yours, um, to to the sort of tech friendly, like I still listen to Marketplace and Wall Street Journal Tech Daily. I love MIT Tech Review. I even find some of the consulting companies like Deloitte and Kinsey, write incredibly accessible things about tech. I, I mean, I think so much of my career is about sort of tech translation. And in order to do that, that's about understanding the use cases in which technology can be used, understanding kind of where the boundary constraints of what AI can and can't do, and then um, sort of translating that in conversation. So I I also don't presume with any expert that I'm dealing with to tell them that I'm an expert. I'm something of a technology generalist, so I have a good sense of technologies and the roles they play. I know when things from just working across different technologies when certain kinds of ideas are important or jump out. Um, and I, I, um, I think the other trick that I would say is having the courage to um, ask kind of what you think are the dumb questions and um, just put out there like, you know, what do you mean by this? Or what, what is AI? And hearing what people have to say, even if you think you know the answer and then really listening carefully to see if what they say is different. That was probably one of my number one tricks to really getting like really wise, insightful information is having that courage to say, I think I know the answer, let me ask, and then getting a totally different answer and going, okay, I really didn't know. Um, But you have that, you know, that works about 50% of the time. So you have to have a courage for those moments when people are like, why are you asking me this?
0: (laughs) I love the phrase uh, that you called uh, tech translator. I think in today's world, it's so important for organizations of all sizes to have people like you people who bring different networks, different skill sets together. Because without tech translators, uh, I don't think the information really scales and connects. And I think we live at a time where all everybody doesn't need to be an AI expert, but people do need to have an answer or an, an opinion how AI might disrupt their industries, uh, their work lives, their personal lives, and so forth. So I think what you're doing is a really important job. Um, I, w- I wanted to just... Um, conclude by asking a few more questions about how a day in your life looks like and uh, um, what are some parts of your job that energize you most? Uh,
1: um, well, I mean, I think, you know, no day looks the same. Um, some of my- That's a
0: definition of an exciting job, right? <laughs>
1: right, for sure. Um, and, and, and frankly, right now, because of where we are in the center and the skills that we have across our team, a lot of my work right now is really focused on our partnership and stakeholder management. So my job is to make sure that we have happy partners, happy clients, that we're developing new lines of funds for our center, um, because that's how we get to do the really incredible work. And so I'm really privileged to get to be on the front lines of those conversations, trying to help make the case for for why people should trust us and become part of our larger Atlantic Council community and team, and I take that really seriously. I'm also really charged with a lot of the day-to-day functions and management of our team, so I'm doing a lot of things to mentor and coach our team behind the scenes as well as just ensure that our center operations are happening smoothly. I also am really charged with ensuring that we're implementing our center's agenda. So I take a look at all of the thought leadership strategies that we put forward, um, especially, you know um, because David's such a creative thinker, I often look to him to see what's kind of the strategy he wants us to set. And then I'm really sort of charged with how do we then translate that to execution? So my day-to-day is usually full of tasks that involve that whether it's meeting with my team, meeting with clients, preparing, you know, different kinds of materials, that kind of stuff. So probably the actual day-to-day work doesn't look as glamorous as when I get to do the deep thought work or, you know, get, get to really dig in with partners about how do we get to or design our next program. That's when I probably light up the most. Um, in terms of the the work that I love, I, you know, I love getting to think about these tech issues. I love getting to think about how we design program services. Um, I love getting to think about how, how does, I love getting to think globally about these issues. Like how do the choices we make here in terms of the work we do, the research we do impact the global community at large. And then above all, I love getting to work with our team, shepherding them, helping mentor them through their work, through their, their challenges and trying to support them where I can. Um, So it's, I, I get to do a lot, but I also have a lot of really great touch points in my work where, where there are a lot of things that, um you know, really excite me and, and challenge me and, and help me grow every day. So I'm, I think I'm, as, as you probably could see from my career, I've been very, I feel like one of the areas I've been incredibly fortunate is in work and the kind of work I've gotten to do. I've always, I've always had something that I loved in, in any job that I've had. And, and so that's, that's really to me, true, true opportunity and, and true privilege is to love your work.
0: Yeah. Stephanie, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and uh, I want our entire community to connect with the global, uh, the Atlantic Council that you've set up and all the initiatives. What's the best place for people to find the work that you guys do and uh, where you put out your podcasts and uh, other sessions? I know that now Clubhouse is also on your radar, so tell us how people can find
1: you. Sure, absolutely. So, so first off, you can all find me personally via LinkedIn. Um, so um, I think I'm I'm just Stephanie Wander on LinkedIn. I'm, I don't think there are that many of us, so um, I'm pretty easy to find in that way. Um, in terms of our center, just visiting the Atlantic Council GeoTech Center homepage is a great great way to come check us out. Uh, easily Googleable. Um, that'll give you really a feel for our robust portfolio. But I'm I'm honestly happy to connect with anyone. So don't don't hesitate to send folks my way um, if anyone wants to connect us.
0: Awesome, Stephanie, it's been such a pleasure and we can't host your wait to host you back for some of these cohort-based fellowships that we host in technology, policy, writing, and uh, deep tech. Thanks so much for your time and uh, look forward to speaking and meeting you hope, in person.
1: I really appreciate this opportunity and would be delighted to do anything I can to support your community. So please don't hesitate to let me know how I can be of service. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Stephanie. Bye, take care.